we are in an organization that is by definition across borders. Cash knows no limits and no borders. The fact is you have to think about global solutions that have a localized flavor that takes into account the, the specificities of the countries. Whether they are regulations, i.e. can you actually send money without XYZ between one country or another? Which currency can you transact in and, and keep and send over? Those are all the little things that over time you start learning and you become much more aware actually of the questions that need to go into these decisions. Hello and welcome to The Invisible Vault. This episode features an interview with Hamza Benamar, CFO of Kariba. Hamza has spent more than 20 years driving peak financial performance at Fortune 500 publicly listed and private equity companies across Europe, Asia, Latin, and North America. Before Kariba, he served in leadership roles in finance, operations, consulting, and pre-sales at companies like Amgen, Walters Kluwer, SAP, and SunGuard. On this episode, Hamza discusses the importance of staying attuned to the global market, how we're coming closer to full digitization of payments, and how the pandemic is redefining talent acquisition, as well as the workplace as a whole. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from Kariba. The Invisible Vault is powered by the team at Kariba, the global leader in cloud treasury and finance solutions, empowering CFOs and their teams to transform how they activate liquidity as a dynamic, real-time vehicle for growth and value creation. To learn more, visit kariba.com. So please enjoy this interview between Hamza Benamar, CFO of Kariba, and your host, Bob Stark. Hi, I'm Bob Stark, and welcome to the Invisible Vault podcast. I'm actually joined by an extra special guest, one of my colleagues from Kariba, in fact. Hamza is the CFO of Kariba. Welcome, and I look forward to having a great conversation with you today. Thank you, Bob. Uh, very much looking forward to this discussion today. Thanks, Hamza. I'm actually really excited to talk with you because we've really only started getting to know each other, swapping war stories about cycling as well as some more strategic finance chats. I think we can get into some interesting ground that will be news to me as well as everyone listening. So let's get started. Absolutely. A pleasure. So let's start at the very beginning. Everyone has a reason why they got into finance and why they became a CFO. Why finance for you? Yeah, if, if I look back at, uh, at my career, I think finance uh, was uh, a logical conclusion of many accidents that have happened. So uh, I, I started my career in engineering. Uh, I went to engineering school. And in my first job out of school, I spent some time in manufacturing. And uh, very quickly, I started as a, as a curious-minded person who's making these decisions and who gets to approve my capital spend or not. And uh, ironically, decades later, I'm worrying about working capital and approving who gets to spend what. So uh, it's through that, uh, those simple questions 20 plus years ago that I decided to go back to, uh, to school at UT Austin and to, uh, to learn a little bit more about the basics of, uh, of accounting. And from there, I, I began uh, a career in consulting at SAP, where uh, it, it was just uh, a crash course university in how AR and AP and a general ledger and a treasury, all of these uh, functions within finance actually functioned from a systems perspective. And, uh, and after spending three years uh, doing solution architecting and pre-sales, I decided to actually go into corporate finance. So, so that's how I ended up starting a career in finance about 19 years ago, 20 years ago. And uh, I started where uh, I would advise many folks to start, which is in the audit function, as it opens a lot of doors within an organization to first meet people and then learn about a lot of different functions. And from there on to decide whether someone wants to go the accounting route or the FPNA route or to stay in controls or tax and so forth. So this is why I really look at my career and I say I ended up in finance because I was curious to know how decisions were made. And it's really interesting that decades later, I'm learning every single day that my role is about decision making and about using numbers just like an engineer would tons of data 
to actually help a lot of stakeholders within the organization make uh, uh, prudent decisions within an ecosystem of risks that, uh, that we're all facing. There's many questions I want to ask you as a result of that, because I think that's such a, it's an interesting narrative in terms of where you started and then obviously your pivot to go into finance. Is it a fair statement to say that that background in engineering, the skills and experience that you acquired there really have helped you vault forward to get to the level in finance that you are? Very much so. Very much so in that one of the critical skill set that you acquire in engineering is not necessarily solving problems. It's actually being able to define problems. And I, I go one extra step and I say define the right problem. And this is exactly the daily menu that CEOs and CTOs and CMOs and the whole C executive panel is facing on a daily basis. And that's, am I actually resolving the right problem given the, uh, the symptoms that I'm seeing, given the data that I'm looking at? And then it's actually about figuring out what that action plan should be and operationally how to solve that issue. So being trained as an engineer, you basically acquire this knee-jerk reaction to facing problems where you're always trying to define first and foremost, what are the conditions of this problem? What are the limitations that this problem actually is dictating to you? And therefore, what kind of solutions could you actually uh, propose from a short-term perspective and from a long-term perspective. So, you know, all these engineering concepts of velocity, of coverage, i.e., do you want to solve a problem 100%, but then it's going to take you too long and it will be very expensive versus should you actually bring forward a quick win solution? So that's all should be very native and very much, as I say, knee-jerk reaction from in engineering uh, mind. But I think the second thing that sets a training in engineering apart from other educational backgrounds is just the ability to uh, transact into a lot of data. Not only data, but data sets. And being able to bucket that data along uh, different dimensions. And the good engineers, just like the good finance profiles, are going to be the one that will make that data speak in English. I think data by itself and having the math problem resolution skill set by themselves, they're stale if you cannot actually translate your approach and your, your problem definition and your solution proposal into something that people understand and you can influence them in following the path to that solution. And, and I would say this to every daily transaction that a CFO goes through, whether I get on the phone with a customer and we have to basically to get to a consensus uh, around the terms and conditions of a contract to be able to process in the background what is that customer's need and what are the needs that we have financially, uh, as much as when I need to present to the, to the board in a few weeks and being able to distill the message to exactly what that audience requires and, and to keep asking myself, what do I expect from them rather than what they expect from me? There's actually a lot to unpack within there. So I, I think I'm going to use the rest of our conversation to go through a lot of the things that you just raised. One specific one that I found interesting was the translation comment that you made, specifically saying that it's need to translate it into, as you said, English or whatever other languages. Kariba is a global organization, and, and in your past experience, you've had a tremendous amount of global experience. So how has that helped you specifically? And would it be far to say that you recommend that international experience, that background, to be an effective CFO? Yeah, you, you know, uh, when I look back at my career, I left the U.S. back in 2003. Back then, I was at Amgen a very successful biotech company headquartered out of Thousand Oaks in California. And um, my boss approached me and said, hey, Hamza, we, we want a multilingual person to head to Europe and set up an audit function. And it'll be just an 18-month, 24-month assignment. And then you'll be back in no time to California. And, and that 18-month assignment uh, turned into 12 years 
assignment uh, internationally between Europe and uh, Asia. And what is a plus for a finance leader as we start modeling different scenarios, as we are having these discussions with our CEOs about go-to-market strategies and where our bets should be, I think having that intimate knowledge of how businesses operate, how countries actually operate, is a major addition beyond that Excel-driven and data-driven modeling. And, and, and I keep going back to knowing your customer, knowing the different stakeholders is what sets apart you know, great organizations from average or good uh, organizations. So uh, my experience, uh, you know, living and working in Hong Kong and having to look at how do you actually build up a sales organization in China and what kind of partnerships are needed uh, in, in China versus how you would start an organization in Germany or expand a, uh, an organization in Southern Europe. All of these are what I would call soft skills that I cannot summarize in a, in a memo or in a spreadsheet. They keep coming back as we're having these discussions. In fact, discussions that just happened a couple of hours ago with the CEO of Kariba in terms of we can't do it all. We have to focus. If we have to focus on the next three or four markets, you know, should we tackle at the same time Italy and at the same time, Northern Europe, and at the same time, China and India and so forth. So having that kind of sensitivity meter that pertains to what are the stumbling blocks or the facilities that you may have in going into one market versus another, I think is a major plus. But as importantly, I think being very attuned in this global world, and we are in an organization that is by definition across borders, Cash knows no limits and no borders and no, uh, no country borders. Um, the, the fact is you have to think about global solutions that have a localized flavor that takes into account the, the specificities of the countries. Whether they are regulations, i.e. can you actually uh, send money without XYZ between one country or another? Which currency can you transact in and and keep and send over. Those are all the little things that over time you start learning and you become much more aware actually of the questions that need to go into these decisions. It's what makes you able to be a proactive business partner instead of just reactive and answering the questions that are given to you by having that insight and knowledge. Yes, and, and I think uh, one of the upsides from uh, living overseas and having experiences in different countries is that I have a very good network of ex-colleagues that have become friends, and that network you know, tends to, to expand where, um, yeah, I could read you know, the front page of the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal to figure out how things are evolving in Brazil, but I can also reach out to my friends that are in the industries, that are in the healthcare sector. Uh, I, I worked at Walters Kluver Health, and, and I was able actually to, to meet some really fully engaged folks in the health environment and system uh, of care in, in Brazil. And they can actually provide me with a lot of insights about how their hospitals are doing and therefore how the economy may or may not recover. That kind of conduit, that kind of networking becomes very precious and, and, and priceless for CFOs over time. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, what you know and who you know are definitely the groundwork to build from. Let's go into our first segment called Cash Crossroad. Show me the money. Hear this, Katie? Money. Cash money. When do we talk about money? And here I actually want to ask you about probably the, one of the biggest decision-making opportunities, or maybe tests is perhaps the better word, that we've seen in recent history, obviously. We had in 2008 the credit crisis that was uh, a confluence of things and relatively short-lived, maybe some long-term consequences. But what we just came out of in terms of the pandemic was a great test for you as a CFO and for every finance organization. 
So tell me a little bit about what changed at the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020. Yeah, th- this this uh, pandemic has put uh, to the forefront of, of many dashboards and screens the concern and the focus on the health being of employees. This is something that we simply did not have to think about as much as we had to a year, a year and a half ago when it came to who's where, who's impacted, how could that actually impact uh, our organizations, how families could actually impact uh, our employees. Um, th- that kind of a, of, of a complex problem that hits us globally, where there is no family that is safe uh, from the ramifications of a, of a pandemic that is going wild, I think was, was the first wake-up call in terms of what's different in, in this case, you know, if we were just to compare our mindsets to the 2008-2009 crisis, where it, 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 was, it was a different, uh, let's say, uh, set of priorities in, in, in the earlier months. The other thing that hit us overnight is how to make remote work work. As you know, we are in, a, in I think, a very unique industry where it's all about people. I see it on the PNL in terms of people cost, but that is actually our plus in this industry. It's all about IP. It's all about the brains that are developing our software and that are running our technology platforms and that are allowing our customers to keep transacting regardless of what's happening around them uh, globally. So being able to manage effectively remote work overnight is something that we had to to figure out. But but I think if, if I shift my focus from organizationally what it meant for us as colleagues, and then I look outward, what we had to do is continue. And I think what uh, COVID has done for all, for many companies is to help them accelerate building deeper relationships with within their ecosystem, with, the, with their stakeholders. And those stakeholders, Holders could be, you know, their bankers, they could be the, uh, uh, their boards, their customers, their suppliers, their employees, their, their partners. Uh, um, I mean, we have plenty of professional services partners that are implementing our, our software. And therefore, the depth and the quality of that relationship mattered a lot in the earlier days and still matters today in terms of how can we, in a going forward uh, perspective, nurture and keep that integration with the different nodes within our networks so we are not surprised actually by another pandemic or by another major event like uh, COVID. The one thing, you know, I lived in Switzerland for a few years and if there was one thing I did not miss living in Switzerland are checks. You literally could not write a check in Switzerland. And I, I, when I moved back to the US, I basically had to, uh, uh, to order uh, some, some checks and to start writing checks and receiving checks. And what's happened over the last 18 months is we've been able to convert many customers and vendors to electronic transactions, something that has been taking companies many years and a lot of effort to accomplish is now actually happening at a faster pace. We're not at 100%, obviously, but the growth of payment vendors you know, for C2C and B2C and C2B are mushrooming around us. Uh, you know, if you visit China, Alipay or uh, WeChat are taken now for granted as forms of payments, and uh, no one but probably the the tourists are reaching for for some cash. Uh, I see that progressing at a faster pace here in the U.S. Uh, but more importantly, these B two B payments, I think, we'll see a lot of benefits as much as. We've accelerated our move to remote work. I think we will also accelerate uh, our digitization when it comes to um, uh, to payments. Yeah, I would very much agree with you that the we'll call it the digital transformation or digitization of payments is here to stay. There was a tailwind from the pandemic that got us to get rid of checks, or at least mostly get rid of checks. Would you say that some of the other uh, we'll say changes that you implemented, such as being able to support a remote workforce and is that here to stay as well, or is there some element of hybrid that you feel 
is going to permeate. I know there's different schools of thought on this, but I've seen studies ranging from everything that suggests two-thirds of CFOs expect there'll be some element of hybrid work, whereas 80% of CFOs would like there to be some element of hybrid work. So there seems like there's different expectations. What are your thoughts? I'm looking forward, actually, to to, to the next few years because uh, I'm, I'm convinced we will see a societal transformation when it comes to what we understand the workplace to be, what we understand talent management to be. This is nirvana, in my opinion, to be able to redefine talent acquisition. So I start with the premise that we are organizations of people. People are our major asset that actually differentiates us from our competition. And that fostering um, invention and creativity is the most important thing that software companies can have as a competing differentiator. And going into this no man's land, i.e. we still don't know how it's going to really shape up, whereby we are disconnecting the talent uh, from the GPS location of that talent, for me is going to, in my opinion, unleash a lot of greater collaboration, greater uh, innovation uh, across different companies. We're moving from my headquarter is in Dallas, and I'm going to start fishing for talent within 50 miles uh, of Dallas. Uh, If you're in a European city, you're going to fish within five miles uh, uh, of of that city as their concept of, of commute is a little bit more, let's say, disciplined and sane than we have in the U.S., So I think this disconnect between location uh, of talent and uh, acquisition of talent is going to give an edge to companies that actually understand this equation and, and act on it, which will probably dictate that because of competitive forces and pressures, that many more companies that are not willing to actually align with, with this new approach will be forced if they want to attract and retain talent to actually give a little bit more, in my opinion, importance to this disconnect. Now, it puts a lot more pressure on all of us, talent managers and talent owners, to not only attract the right talent, but actually groom them and provide them with the right level of engagement and with the right level of perspective on what their careers could look like within a set uh, organization. So we will be competing, uh, I think, for, for the good talent. There probably will be a, a hybrid model. I'm just not sure as the newer generation uh, comes into the market, whether they will have the same concept and emotional attachment to commuting to a specific building in a city. I think we're in a transition. Like all transitions, there will be multi-generational preferences And over time, that hybrid approach will be more of a convenience. Uh, And the the Zooms of uh, and Microsoft Teams of 2025 and 2028, I think, will be better and more user friendly and and so forth. So I'm very hopeful, actually, about the changes that are happening. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that, because it's very insightful to think of the impact in the overall organization. And not just thinking from a finance perspective, it's great to have people in the same room. Um, because you're right, it's there's a generational shift and there's different preferences and it all is about finding the right talent. I would say your your great insights are also echoed by the housing market, which seems to be increasing all outside of city centers uh, as much as within them. So it's, it's great comments on that. I'd like to kind of get into that a little bit more. We'll do that in our section called The Playbook. You hand me an idea that I can shock the world with. I got one more page in my playbook. Now get out there and do it. The playbook is where we go through business strategy. Now, so far, you've given us great insight into business strategy. In fact, every single answer you give is very strategic and insightful. So I think this will be an easy uh, part of the podcast for you. Let's start out with something just a little bit different, even though I think we'll get back into these themes of decision-making and being a business part of the organization. I want to start with a question I ask every single guest. 
what does risk management mean to you? And I know that's a very open-ended, heavy question, which by nature is meant to potentially give a very different answer. Um, so from your perspective, what is risk? So I'll, I'll go back to maybe some analogies with, uh, within the engineering uh, environment. Whenever you're trying to manage a set of variables, you have to understand what could be influencing those variables. And I'll use here a concept from accounting and controls that says, can I have some certainty or some confidence or assurance about the completeness of those variables, about the timeliness of getting insight into those variables and so forth, a COSO framework that uh, accountants would be familiar with. So I, I, I go back to how I, I look at risk as a CFO, and I consider it as one of the major pillars in terms of deliverables that a CFO uh, needs to own, is I, I look at risk and I say, I'm facing as an organization that is working with different stakeholders, uh, that is not an enclosed system, uh, that is under its full control, and this is where risk actually come in. What are my financial risks? What are my operational risks? And what are my IT risks and other risks that I'd be facing? So it's really about these disruptors that if I don't have the right controls, if I don't have the right understanding of my ecosystem, they have the potential of surprising the organization, the leadership. And therefore, how can I actually build uh, uh, an organization, an infrastructure, a set of processes and tools? And I urge people to always think along the lines of your people, your processes, and your systems so that, you know, from a financial risk perspective, that you're not hit with a non-compliance. A non-compliance could be as simple as your tax filing or tax considerations that are changing in one country that could be a surprise to you. It could be your debt covenants. It could be your liquidity uh, availability. So those are all the different risks that the CFO and his team should actually put at the forefront. I'm a big proponent of having processes and frequency of reviews that actually do assessments, multiple assessments of these risks. And then you go to, you know, your operational risk and you start thinking about your personnel, your supply chain with, you know, a ship that is stuck in the canal of Suez, you know, where a lot of companies probably were sweating it as to when will they get to actually their shipment. Those are the kind of questions that an organization that is risk management minded will be asking in a proactive way rather than in a reactive way. And that forces us to actually institute some systems and processes that say what your approach would be in managing short-term risk versus mid-term risk. And I keep focusing on the liquidity question of if I had a repeat of a pandemic, if this pandemic would actually to go backwards in terms of being able to control the spread and the consequences of a pandemic, you know, do I have enough liquidity or cash in the locations that are needed over the next? And then this is where leadership plays a role. Is it for the next six months? Is it for the next nine months? It's looking at when actually you are in a steady state, as most of us were in March of 2020, and like a plane, you're hit with mega turbulence. How do you actually manage that turbulence overnight, whereby you have processes, and then suddenly, in simple terms for a CFO, some of your vendors start dropping because they're running out of business. How do you replace those vendors overnight? Do you rush and you start sacrificing some of your fraud detection and assurance of qualification of vendors, or actually do you stick to the processes that uh, you have taken time to build and stress test over time. So having that kind of, a, of an approach that is multidimensional to risk management, where you're thinking about the time horizons, when you're thinking about the proactive, reactive risk management, I think are two key criteria for me to figure out whether we're doing a good job or not in managing our risk. That's a very holistic answer. I like it a lot just because it touches on a variety of areas. One thing that you mentioned, and I don't know if very many people are, are great at this, is 
talking about the frequency, not just setting the policies or the processes or the workflows, but the frequency. Because what I've noticed, uh, certainly in, in finance, certainly in AP or AR or treasury, is there's this tendency to set and forget a policy. And those policies, to your point, don't stand the test of time, certainly don't stand the test of a pandemic and the scenarios like that. But even just general evolution, they don't necessarily stand the test of time as you get new technology, new services, new customers, new suppliers, like everything changes. So why is it, do you think that there is this tendency to set and forget? Not, I mean, obviously you don't and you believe differently, but why is there a tendency in others to do that? Yeah, I, I think this is where the discipline and the uh, advantage of setting processes. People usually are very allergic to the concept of standardizing processes. Yet what, what we all forget is the upside of standardizing. And you see that as you grow into a larger and larger organization with multiple locations, multiple countries, multiple currencies, and so forth that your risk becomes exponential, internal and external. And therefore, that standardization of processes, that standardization of documentation, and being able to revisit, you know, I always like this expression of trust but verify, becomes all the more critical, actually, to what you would consider to be a well-controlled environment. I think if you don't build that uh, muscle reflex, Uh, within your organization that first understands that what's special about risk is that uh, uh, risk is not something that you can control 100%. That is not what the mathematical equation is all about. It's actually about uh, measuring the risk, analyzing what your risk is, measuring what that risk is and what therefore your exposure is given your circumstances, and that's where I say, I open a parenthesis and say, but your, even your circumstances will evolve over time. Every six months, every nine months, you may actually be facing circumstances that are very different within your organization or within geog- geographies or within business units within uh, your, your organization when you're a holding uh, company. And therefore, going back through this cycle, risk management has uh, a life cycle of its own. And some organization will have much greater sensitivity than others. And AWS that is providing access now to millions of businesses and where the where if it were to stop, it's global news within a minute of not being able to uh, uh, provide those transactions. Uh, same thing for Alipay or WeChat. Uh, I bet you that their risk management is very sharp and very well documented. And it's probably uh, measured in uh, hourly reassessments that probably are automated with AI and with other tools uh, versus probably, you know, uh, uh, another environment that has a much slower, slower cycle in terms of changes, i.e. an agricultural farm that is looking at the weather patterns. And, you know, it, it does not have to react to it within a second. And even if it did, you know, there are certain things that it cannot control by putting in more CPUs to solve the problem. So I think, I mean, you you raise a great point, which is risk management uh, is a very dynamic, chaotic environment. It is certainly not static. And there is no final destination in terms of risk assessments and risk remediation, as every single single day, an organization is evolving just like a human body. That's that's fascinating, actually. I, I like that it it really does show the importance of understanding what your risks are and then developing a strategy based on that. Maybe it's a testament to your engineering approach and mindset that you're looking at the problem first before trying to build a solution around it. I, I see a lot reverse order of that, and it doesn't come across as well as you explained it. Absolutely. And I I think what is important uh, to add is risk as much as it is the responsibility of of a CFO. I certainly look at it as a pillar of my main responsibilities. You cannot have a good risk assessment and a good exposure assessment, if if I may say it better, 
if you do not have multiple stakeholders actually involved. And uh, they could be from IT, they could be from marketing, they could be from sales, uh, as much as they could be from legal. Uh, I, I think risk is something that, it, that should be owned by all different functions. I, I certainly cannot think of a single exception within an organization where I say, well, you know, they may not, they may not have a seat at the risk table. So being comprehensive in, in how you approach your data collection and your data points and being comprehensive and, and uh, very strategic in how you discuss actually your exposure, uh, it's only by getting uh, better inputs uh, that you would get actually a better, uh, a better assessment. And this is where I think organizations that have gone through a greater digitization of their processes, whether it's an ERP uh, system or a treasury system or um, a HR system, those are the ones that can or have the ability or the luxury to spend less time wondering whether they have the right data and actually more time discussing what that data is informing them. And that, for me, I see it on a daily basis where when you think about fraud, for example, as, as a risk factor, if you have manual processes and you don't have computerized workflow, then your risk management is made all the, all the heavier, all the more complex, and all the slower in terms of how you could react to what's facing you. Spoken like a true business partner. <laughs> so well said on that. <laughs> it sounds like data, being data-driven and being very automated are hand-in-hand in, hand in terms of being and having an effective data-driven approach. Is that a fair statement for you? Yes, I, I think being data-driven for me means what I said earlier in our conversation. It's about disability or developing over time within an organization and a culture, disability to have the numbers tell a story. And that story is about your business, about your challenges, about your opportunities. I think what's, what's important is beyond analyzing your data and understanding your data is what you're going to do with it. So we're, we're seeing all these AI algorithms that are coming online, and they can certainly crunch a lot of data. And if I look at it as a math person, I'm looking at AI as one tool in my toolbox that allows me to actually detect trends that as a human being, I'm unable to. Uh, I mean, we are well-programmed to reach saturation very quickly with data for good reasons. Because for a few thousands of years, we needed to worry about where the lion was hiding so that we could save our lives. So our data points were very uh, focused, which in fact, I think is a good lesson for everyone. Focus, focus on what you're trying to, to analyze. But we have reached in our generation, actually this luxury level of sophistication where CPUs with uh, 16 cores and 32 cores, and, and you just align them in parallel, can sift through tons and tons of data and can bring up to the surface some trends. Now, those machines, quite frankly, and for many years to come, I'm willing to bet, will not be able to actually come up with business recommendations that are based on those trends. And the reason for that is, I, I, if that is the case, then you need to push that reasoning to its extreme and say, but then every other company has exactly the same data set or access to a similar uh, data set. And the conclusions will all be uh, similar if, it's, if the algorithms are ac uh, actually logical in their design. And therefore, what becomes then your differentiator in what you actually do with that data? So as a decision maker, surrounded by other decision makers, where I think finance can play a major role, whether it is in uh, investment working capital decisions or treasury cash liquidity decisions or what have you, I think it's to actually leverage uh, those mountains of data through the lens of algorithms and say, given these trends, what should be actually my decision and what should be my, my decision matrix 
as without those algorithms, I would not even have thought that there was, and, and this is for me the, the key scientific linkage that I make, what I see data and AI offering us as decision makers is the ability to provide us with correlations. But it's for the humans to decide whether there was causality between the two. And oftentimes people actually confound these two concepts and think that if they can only actually drive the data or the KPIs to certain correlation, then there will be a Newtonian causality you know, downstream. Well, it doesn't happen that way systematically. That's not how it works. So I'm really looking forward to how actually this world is going to change around us, where if you were to ask most CFOs today, we start with a mountain of data, and then we have some very smart analysts that massage that data in Excel, and then we dump that into some kind of a, a, of a, a reporting analytics UI presentation tool that could be Tableau, that could be other, other good, uh, good tools. But we spend most of our time in a linear environment where we just don't have enough time to actually look at all the intricacies in existing trends that we just cannot actually see. So there is that bias confirmation in a lot of what we do because we don't have that bandwidth to actually try a lot of different hypotheses and actually focus on a conclusion around the data. I hope that was uh, clear enough and not overcomplicated. <laughs> I think that was, that was perfect. Uh, you actually did a very nice job at identifying the opportunity that data provides us and data transforming into information. And now seems like a great time to transition to our next segment, Report from the Future. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. I see the future. The future is the finish line. I've always believed that the world is what we make of it. Report from the Future is when we talk about the CFO of the future preparing for the next big global event in emerging technologies. So let me ask you this, because you've alluded to the technologies a couple of different times. Is the technology evolved enough to meet that opportunity yet? Or do you see that there's more room to grow? I think where we stand today, the technology is ahead of us. You know, whenever you look at technology, there is the, uh, what I would call the, the hardware versus the software. I think the AI hardware is ahead of us. I think our software tools have not yet matured to a level where we can take advantage of the trends and the correlations and the causalities that these algorithms are spitting on screens. So the differentiator for companies that I think will, will be born over the next few years are the ones that look at AI as a utility and they look at it as just another engine. And they're going to do something with it in terms of how do you actually take uh, mountains of data and what process do you walk that data through? And out of those outputs, how do you present actually the output of those algorithms? I keep going back to, um, we have a lot of very smart people that can handle a lot of mathematical equations, multidimensional. The issue is being able to tell a business story in layman's language. And, and I think... This is my conviction that um, the, the good CFOs, as much as the good CEOs and so forth, are the ones that can tell a story to, to the street, to investors, that can actually be very convincing about the investment thesis that they have in terms of the value proposition that they're bringing to the market. So I think where AI is today, you know, it reminds me of our early days 20 years ago when we did not have uh, 4G and 5G. And I still remember working at SAP where we were thinking about someone approving a purchase order on a phone, on a Nokia. And I still remember, I, I forgot the, the name of the technology. It wasn't even 2G, but it was basically the transfer of text. It was a, a, a grandiose version of text messaging that you would send from your Nokia to an API that goes into the bank back end of SAP and basically says, you know, I've, I've, I've approved this purchase order. Um, those were the baby steps. That was the concept of this is what you can do. Now, if only 
the uh, the bandwidth and the user interface because back then that user interface was uh, was really wanting on a on a Nokia uh, that was black and white and 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 with a few with a few keys. So AI today, I think it's a it's a great buzzword. I think there are some real applications among data scientists in universities. I think they are able to actually write their own algorithms that are learning in nature, and they have the time and the tenacity and the patience to actually look into what the data is telling them. I think we're at baby steps uh, right now. The user interface, in my humble opinion, is going to be the empowering differentiator for these AI solutions. Yeah, I agree with you. There's, there is still work to do on that, but you need to have the vision and strategy first. If you're going into these kind of conversations or going into these meetings, trying to figure out how is AI going to help us, it needs to be the other way around is here's the opportunity that we see what sort of technology, what sort of people, what sort of data scientific approach and discipline needs to be put in place to help us solve that problem. Your mindset and your, your vision for that, I think is exactly the right one. Yes. Yes. And, 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 you know, I, I, I have some, some application of AI that I'm, I'm looking forward to. I hope they happen before I retire. And that's, can a CEO and a CFO have that one pager when they start their morning? And that page, that one page actually detects trends within the organization and within uh, the geographies where they're operating that could educate them about certain priorities or certain issues that are not on their radar screen that they should put on their uh, calendar that day. And it's frankly the simple stuff. I'm, I'm not asking for complex things. It's about that AI engine knowing who my top 50 customers are. And if anything happens with those 50 customers, I need to know that day. If, if they go IPO, if they merge, if they get acquired, if they lose a big account, whatever is publicly available, not even you know, inside the information, those are the kind of things that AI, I think, could help multiple functions figure out. I can think of business development functions that are actually educated about what's happening in certain geographies, in certain industries. So maybe out of this pandemic, uh, certain industries are going to see more spend on XYZ. How can we know that as soon as possible so that we can actually prepare and plan uh, for that? What, what, what we see still is, I maybe abuse this word, we see a lot of linear thinking. We see airlines uh, a year and three months ago uh, uh, basically getting rid of a lot of airplanes. And we see the same airlines putting orders in the billions of dollars for hundreds of planes in uh, June and July of 2021, just, just 15 months later. These are capital-intensive decisions that are made with tremendous financial ramifications from a liquidity perspective and, and from, a, from an ability to react to actually a ramp-up in the markets and witness how the Southwest Airlines are canceling flights left and right, yet they should be actually sizing this opportunity to keep as many flights on schedule as possible. That linear thinking of we will make the decision as it comes, I think this is where AI could have detected a lot of trends and actually provided those airline CEOs with the insights that you just cannot figure out with, with spreadsheets. That's a really good point. And I almost want to dive into the airlines part, but I'll, I'll leave that alone for the moment to just kind of encapsulate what you said is there's an element of structured decision-making that needs to be done better, but it's bringing in the unstructured data into your analysis that is really important. And that seems to be the missing ingredient. Even some of the AI algorithms that exist today, a lot of them are relatively simplistic and they focus on structured data. So it's kind of, validating what I already thought, as opposed to tell me the things I didn't know. And your point was, there's things I don't know that I really like to. That's important as making sure that my decision around parking airplanes was a good idea, given at the outset of the pandemic. But now I'm seeing a strategy where we actually realize we need more narrow body, longer aircraft that serves more passengers in our hub markets, as an example. Yes, and I think this is the same discussion around risk 
and around visibility and around the role of CFOs within organizations and other C-level leaders, and that we're paid to manage uncertainty. And the winners are the ones that actually make the most out of uncertainty. A lot of the winners that we will be talking about in the stock market in two or three years or six years are probably now $20 million companies or $5 million companies or not even born. And I think those are the folks that have are actually sizing on the opportunity of tremendous uncertainty over the last 15 months. I think the only greater uncertainty is during time of war. I think pandemics actually uh, come right behind. And I may be wrong on, on, on this assessment. But when you look at that, you say, actually being developing these capabilities to manage uncertainty becomes the differentiator between the winners and uh, not so winners or losers within industries and within new industries that that are uh, being formed. AI is a tool, just like so many other tools, but that human intelligence of uh, making the numbers uh, speak is still very much relevant today as it will be in 10 years. Great point and great segue to our next and final section, quick hits. Hurry up, hurry up. Quick, 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 quick. Because speaking of winners and losers, I want to get your view on just a couple of those. So these are quick questions in search of quick answers. But first, winner and loser, future of crypto and digital currencies. And I'll qualify it by saying for treasury and finance, because I realize there's a broader question, but I'm going to ask this the, the finance one for now. What do you think? Listen, I think it's a good sign when I went for a haircut yesterday at Great Clips and the hairdressers were talking about Bitcoin prices and GameStop prices. So I was thinking, you know, maybe this stuff has some legs. But uh, on a a serious note, I mean, putting aside all these major swings uh, up and down of of valuation of these uh, cryptocurrencies, at the end, what we're trying to do as a civilization is trying to remove intermediaries in the payment process, in the uh, transfer of liquidity, of value, of an asset from one set of hands to another, and yet be able to validate actually that transaction. At the end, this is the mathematical problem that we're trying to solve that has a lot of social and, in my opinion, geopolitical ramifications. Because as you know, the, the, the entities that are issuing the fiat currency today and that are overseeing the payment process and that have every incentive to make sure that taxation is, is respected and illicit transactions are not happening are governments. I think we are in from a finance and treasury perspective, I, I think we can see in a crystal ball what, what will happen over the next few years. As a treasurer, I think what is happening here is we're going to have a few more tools, a few more tokens that will be digital. So another asset type that I'm going to have to manage, that I'm going to have to forecast, and I'm, I'm going to have to transact in, and I'm going to have to move around the globe. And what's happening today is different countries are trying to solve different problems. If you look at Uruguay and Ecuador, they're trying to basically enhance financial inclusion of their citizens. People with bank accounts they aren't, they, uh, are not the vast majority in those countries. So how can I give you a phone? Everyone has a phone. And you, you can start using a digital currency to transact. The Swedes are in probably step two or three They're not using cash anymore. They're relying on private payment companies, but they want a backup plan because if those private companies were to go bust, then there is an issue with how uh, Sweden, uh, Swedish citizens could actually keep transacting. And that's why I think they're they're coming up with the e-crone. Then you have the Chinese model, which probably is going to be the model that we in, in B2B organizations will need to take into account, which is... The Chinese do not want to actually eliminate the banking system. They do not want to eliminate the uh, private payment companies, i.e. the Alipays and the WeChats. What they're trying to do is maybe do it all, and maybe that's, that's where we're heading. And that's to say, you know what, 
the government will issue digital tokens, just like it's issuing cash uh, today. And I'm going to actually give them to the banks, and the banks will issue that just like they're issuing cash to the customers. But I'll be able to trace every single transaction that is being transacted within my system, and I will have full control, actually, of what's happening within my economy. And, and I'm seeing already things that we may not need to worry about from a corporate environment, but maybe from a B2C environment, is that even the Chinese are realizing that they need to be a little bit more creative or agile and say, you know, how can we have what I would call low-value digital wallets, where, you know, you, you don't need all that overhead of oversight and control and validation and so forth when you're trying to buy a French baguette, uh, you know, for one euro. Um, you know, how do you do that? So I think it's coming. I think like everything else in life, it will be an evolution rather than a revolution. What it certainly tells us is cash and checks are going to uh, uh, be uh, items in museums very soon. And it also gives me a lot of, of, of hope about the fact that from a treasury perspective, we just will get faster, more available tools and assets that we can move around. And for the time being, it's very expensive and very onerous to actually move uh, monies around the globe across countries. So that cross-border, I think, function from a treasury and finance perspective, I think has brighter days uh, ahead of it. Once again, it's a great answer because you talk about the opportunities as much as just the reality. Does, do we need digital currencies? Well, let's not worry about do we need digital currencies. Let's look at the opportunities that they can potentially solve for us. And it's, a, it's a great mindset and a great approach to what is an interesting topic of a conversation, even amongst your hairdressers. <laughs> Question number two. Um, Artificial intelligence. So we've talked a lot about AI, even in this podcast. Does AI replace people, in your view? No, I, I think it's a tool. It's not an end in itself. I don't think there will be uh, conscious intelligence coming up from the artificial end of this process. I think it is an absolutely uh, useful tool uh, for us Homo sapiens that cannot actually that uh, oversaturate very quickly from a brain power perspective with too much data. You know, marketeers always remind me that if they give me more than six options, I'm lost, you know, at the grocery store, and therefore it's better to give me less to choose from. That's what AI, uh, I, I see it as very complementary to human intelligence because we have to take into account what I would call the cultural aspect. We have to take into account the relationships that we have with our customers, and we should be very attuned actually as to what the relationship is with one account versus another, what is the history, what are the personal relationships between I as a CFO vending something to a customer and the CFO on the other side. All of those things, and uh, you said it earlier, actually who you know matters a lot. AI, I don't think has an algorithm uh, for that. And it becomes all the more important when you leave some of these societies and you move into societies that are now uh, seeing a lot of growth in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, and even in LATAM, where relationships matter a lot. And it's better for you to leverage what AI can educate you about your market, about your customers, than actually delegating your decisions and the approach of your decisions, uh, you know, to a machine. I, I just want to remind people, I, you know, we there are so many discussions about working in the office versus everyone working remotely. And there are many CEOs, I think for good reasons, speak to the culture aspect. That yes, we, you can automate everything, you can have laptops and tablets and fiber optic connections at home, et cetera. But many still speak of, but how about those get together where people are exchanging ideas and they're trying to innovate in their approach and thinking outside of the box. So I really hope for us, that we look at AI as that gate opener to outside the box so that we can start thinking outside the box. I would like to think that the folks that have spent a lot of their time uh, programming and in uh, math problems and physics, et cetera, are the ones that are actually push for that right balance in terms of we can do things faster and better, 
but the decision making is is not necessarily to be programmed into an algorithm. It it still needs that human massage and packaging before it goes out for consumption by by our partners and our network. That's a great answer. Uh, AI is a enabler of a system of insight and making people more valuable. It's a great um, opportunity for technology to help us. So thank you for that. And thank you overall. I feel I could ask you 20 more questions and probably after the podcast, I will because you piqued our curiosity in many different areas. But for today, I just want to say thank you very much. That was a fantastic conversation, great insight. And as always, a lot for people to think about in terms of the the role of decision-making and the technologies and processes that support them. So Hamza, thank you. It was a pleasure, Bob. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you for uh, taking this time uh, to have this discussion. Thank you for listening to The Invisible Vault. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. The Invisible Vault is powered by the team at Kariba, the global leader in cloud treasury and finance solutions, empowering CFOs and their teams to transform how they activate liquidity as a dynamic, real-time vehicle for growth and value creation. To learn more, visit www.kariba.com. The creative team behind The Invisible Vault is Bob Stark, Daniel Schaefer, and Dennis Demos, with support from the team at Caspian Studios.